Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securing Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Now, your host, Jim Shoemaker. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern is always money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Today, we have got a program lined up, I think, that's going to help you go through some kind of ideas behind walking through the process of understanding how an employer, and if you're an employee, it really does something you need to listen to, can help you begin to control their health care cost. And the health care cost has just gone, just as you know, out the door. It's out of control in society today. And we've seen legislators try to put something together for us. We talked about Obamacare. We've talked about all other kinds of programs. Well, there is something that's beginning to take traction, and you need to listen to it. You need to understand it. Well, Shannon Dyson's going to help us with that in just a moment. But coming up in the second half, Scott Jordan and Drew Johnson are going to dive into the idea behind rising interest rates and how we respond. You, I mean, this is critical. This is important for you to know from a standpoint of buying a mortgage. If you're thinking about buying a car, all of those thoughts are part of the process. And it's it's government debt that's going to be affected by rising interest rates. So you don't want to miss that part of the program. But up first, and a good friend and a guy who always does a great job with us, Vice President of Shoemaker Insurance Solutions, Shannon Dyson. Welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me, Jim. Shannon, this idea behind, and I, I, talk, I talk about it with the idea behind, yeah, I think employers need to understand it, but it's really the employee that kind of almost, it can almost be like a, an army gaining traction and understanding and pushing for it because a lot of times that's what has to happen to get things done. Yeah, so it's it's important for employers to know um, how to control their costs, but like you said, employees are the ones that are feeling what the employer is actually doing with their health care. Because typically when we think, um, how does an employer control health care costs? Well, raise deductibles. Uh, because if you raise deductibles, you get cheaper prices. And who bears the brunt of that? The employees do. Uh, and so anything that um, employers can learn along the way to, there are actually things that you can do to control costs I think employees are going to be on board for it, especially if they're educated. I know you it. were telling me when we were talking about doing this program, the, the fact that employee cost has risen, literally risen in the last 10 years, 26%. Now, Obamacare was supposed to take care of that, supposed to eliminate that problem. But it's out of control and it's not getting any better. And when you talk about the employer, they're paying more today for health insurance and, and than they ever have before. So it's something obviously out of control and it's got to change. Yeah, I think that's a, a, an important stat to understand that, yes, employee costs have gone up in healthcare, care. Uh, but it's also important to note that employers are paying more now than they ever have before uh, for health care. So it's not a they're transitioning or giving the employee more of a cost share. Uh, it's it's just healthcare inflation is out of control. And you know, I, I'm not necessarily not pointed at any anybody, not at all. But in some cases, they would say, "I'm paying more, 
but I'm not getting the benefit for what I am paying. And you've got some ideas for that. So what's driving this health care cost increase today? One of the most interesting stats uh, that you'll see, and it, it happens no matter the size of the group, uh, no matter the type of plan, uh, but 6 to 8% of employees on a group health plan are driving 80% of the cost of the plan. So 80%... Say, say that again. 80% of the claims in most groups are driven by just 6 to 8% of employees wow. within that company. Uh, and so when you talk about controlling costs, uh, the first thing that, that you see a lot of insurance carriers talking about uh, is uh, wellness, health and wellness. And, and that's great. You need a good preventive wellness program. Um, but if six to 8% of your population are controlling 80% of your costs, you really need to dive into what is going on in that six to 8% and how can we cut those costs or minimize those costs uh, so we can control our health plan. Yeah, that's that's the critical part. When you're talking about the six to eight percent, help me understand who makes up that six to. Is this the chronic, the the critical? Yeah, and the the thing is, again, on the health and wellness, a lot of times in the six to eight percent, these are conditions that may they couldn't have been prevented. Uh, a lot of things are chronic. Yes, uh, a lot of things are just things that are, are genetic um, that you just can't you can't affect with with a wellness program. So how do you go with that that thought process? You've got I mean, you can't go out and say, OK, are you the six and eight percent stand up? Uh, we're going to now, pro, you know, profile you and uh, you've got to wear a T-shirt to work from now on. You can't do that. I mean, you know, but how do you manage that? What do you do? to get these costs under control. I mean, Shetta, this is not a little problem. This is a big, huge issue. And I know you've been working hard to come through and work through. So a lot of, you've been to a lot of, I guess you'd call them seminars or, or teaching things that you've been going through. Well, it's through. a big subject. Big subject, yeah. right. It, it's a huge, huge deal. And what we, you know, the things that we're, we're looking at, we're talking about that six to 8% driving the, driving the claims costs. It's understanding the conditions, and that's how you can start controlling the cost as to where they get treatment. We, we can talk about that, but the way that we look at it is that future of healthcare costs are going to be controlled by what we call the three C's. Uh, it's care teams, cost control, and community. Um, and so with those three things, that can start gaining a little bit of control over your healthcare costs. Talk about care teams. I, I get that. I think that's critical, and I think I understand that. At least it sounds like I do. Care, care teams. Well, tell me, what do you well, think no, about care I teams? Don't, no, uh, <laughs> so, care teams. Um, you know, right now, uh, doctors in our in our current system, doctors are spending about two hours on uh, red tape for every one hour that they actually get to spend with a patient. Uh, and it's because they're getting, they're having to run certain tests that maybe they really don't think that they need to run, but group administrators are saying, hey, you've got to run these tests because we've got to cover ourselves. Right. Uh, and so you're spending a lot more time. Uh, you've got to file insurance. And so the prices that you charge, and then there's discounts, and you've got to figure out where you can actually make money as a practice. So there's a lot of things that go into being a doctor today. Uh, and so what care teams do is they, they bring together your primary care doctor, your dietitians, pharmacists, nurses. Um, and you concentrate on patient care. It's more of a concierge type service uh, to where that these people can talk together. They can know the dietitian can talk with the physician and figure out the best treatment for you. And because they're not filing insurance, uh, they can spend more time with you. and They don't have to worry about all the tests that really they don't need to run. 
uh, that they were just running to cover themselves. So when you talk about a care team, it's like if I'm the patient, I am assigned to care team here, let's just call it care team A, and I may have 10, 15 different people in my care team and they would see that would all they'd all be working together to make sure. So, in other words, if I'm a diabetic, mm-hmm. I'm not going to see a cardiologist because I'm a diabetic. I'm seeing the you know the guy that the hematologist or somebody working with me. I'm not diabetic, but the point is, I, I mean, I don't but even just think about all the all of the the conditions that can be controlled with diet and oh, exercise. Absolutely. And so, when you're meeting with a physician and they can bring the dietitian in and talk about how these things work together in the office setting. Uh, instead of you having to leave, set an appointment to go see somebody else and take more time out of your out of your week or your day. All right, you talked about three C's. Uh, cost control was your second one. Yeah, cost control. There's a lot of challenges um, with cost control. Um, one of them is the high rate of misdiagnosis. Um, there's a study out that John, Johns Hopkins uh, released that said that uh, 20% of cancer diagnoses are misdiagnosed. Uh, spine surgery, 67%, and bypass surgery, 60% uh, misdiagnosis rate. Uh, so in addition to many of the high claims that we're seeing, these people are now seeing three or four different specialists. They're getting a bad diagnosis, going to see a different specialist. You could see over time how those costs increase because specialist visits are not cheap. And so anything going to the cost of your plan and you're seeing three specialists and you could have seen one, it's going to raise your cost. Well, if you just tuned in, my guest is Shannon Dyson. He's the vice president of Shoemaker Insurance Benefits. He's talking about a subject that I think we're just going to have to say it's becoming more and more important. It's taking control of your company's health care expense. And that's just, I mean, everybody wants to do that, wants to say they're doing that, but it's difficult, especially in the day's environment where the insurance company is somewhat controlling that. And you're saying that the employer is going to control this. You talked about three C's. What yep. was the first one? So you got uh, care teams okay. and, and today and right now we're on cost control. Um, so talked about some of the things that are the challenges to cost control. Uh, the way that you help manage that is a medical management team. Uh, so this takes on a medical manager, takes on the role that the insurance company plays as a part of this uh, uh, proposition. So medical managers say, uh, we're going to approve all the, the treatments that you need. We're going to look and make sure that you're going to the right hospital, seeing the right physician. Um, it's amazing that you can look and see the same procedure. Let's just call it an arms, a shoulder surgery. Uh, that can be fifty thousand dollars at one hospital and six at another. Uh, you could see the and same. You're not making that up. These I mean, are these are numbers that are out there that you can see. I need everybody listening to understand. You just didn't pull that out of the sky. No, these are there are studies that will show you fifteen hospitals and they'll show you the same procedure code and you'll see the difference in prices for the exact same procedure. And the management care team is going to say, you're not going to go to the $50,000 doc. Well, now. they're not just looking at cost either. They are. They're looking at cost, but part of it is how well, what are the outcomes of these patients at these well, uh, facilities? Yeah. Um, you could have a physician group and one physician within the group has a not a great outcome, meaning um, people are coming back for a second and third shoulder surgery with this physician, but not with another. And so what a medical management team is able to say, hey, you can go to any hospital you want to, you can see any doctor you would like, and you have a $3,000 deductible. Uh, if you go to this location uh, that we feel has better outcomes and better pricing, we're going to waive the deductible for you. And so, What an incentive. You think about that. All of a sudden, I am a person that's got to have the shoulder surgery, using your example, 
and I meet with my Medicare, med, med, the management team, my medical management team, and they're saying, go here, note it, you know, you got a $3,000 deductible. That, man, that, that's a big number, but that may be where I want to go. Right. Okay. And if that's where I want to go, that's fine. I'll pay for it, but I want to go. Or I can go to Dr. B here, none, no deductible, and we're going to tell you why we're going to be, not just picking him because he's cheap, right? but it's, a, it's got good care. He's got good results. Yes. That's a no-brainer to me. Absolutely. And over time, when employees are, when, when, when there's full transparency in pricing and patient outcomes, and you're able to provide that data to your employees, they're going to make better decisions. No question. Which is going to affect the cost of your plan. All right. Now, you've covered two of the three C's. What's the third? The third C is community. Um, community is a, a way that you are achieving a win-win for both the medical cost savings for the employer, but also a better experience uh, for the employee. Uh, when you look at uh, health care costs you know, across the country, uh, the unfortunate thing is that a zip code can be a better indicator of health than someone's actual DNA code. And that's because healthcare inflation is out of control. And so these communities and employers have had to pull back on things that are very vitally important for people's health. Um, better foods, I mean, better education, the things that we have typically put money into because of healthcare inflation, it's taking it out of those programs. Uh, so when we can cut costs. And what we're talking about right now in all of these areas of concern, we're trying to cut out the waste that is there. Um, there are so many studies out there. Pricewaterhouse did one uh, that says in a health plan that you have at your, at your work or your employer, or you're the employer and you have the plan, there's 30 to 50% waste in healthcare spending. Wow. I mean, that, that's a big number. You can't do that habitually and or consistently and, and say that you're providing what you're really wanting to do for your employee. Absolutely. And so when you're able to cut that waste out of the plan, um, you can now educate your employees the way that we were just talking about. You can hire those medical managers to come in and provide transparency to your employees so they can make better decisions. Uh, you can invest more in your employees by putting money into their health savings accounts or college education funds or enhanced bonus packages. There's so many things that you can do when you cut the waste out of the plan. I mean, I'm overwhelmed because obviously those three C's that you're talking about, I mean, are just so critical. Care team, just the fact that I've got a team of people that are really coming with me and walking my journey. And and having been a cancer patient, I identify with misdiagnosis. I was in a support group meeting just recently. Then the reality is one person talked about being misdiagnosed for almost three years. Yeah. And that's that happens. Not saying that that wouldn't happen with a care team. Yeah. But different eyes are looking. Yeah. Multiple eyes. Exactly. And the, I think the um, the issue, you've got two, two separate things there. The misdiagnosis for the patient and they're feeling overwhelmed and confused. Um, you know, from a cost perspective, um, you are increasing costs three, four, five times because you're seeing different specialists each time. Yeah. And you mentioned those care teams again, and I think that's key. Uh, part of that care team, you know, one of the things, one of the options that you have as we look through what are your options, direct contracting with primary care doctors, um, having a, a physician group that your company goes and sees that you don't pay anything when you see that doctor because your company is paying a per employee per month fee to that physician group. Um, it just frees up time for them to actually see you, hear what you're having to say, and treat you properly. 
So care team, cost control, and community, community. All three of those play a critical part. Now, we're not knocking any hospital, any physician group, or anything like that. That is not the point. That's not what no. we want anybody to even perceive we're doing. The reality is, is we're looking at a different way of managing health care costs from the employer standpoint and the employee standpoint. And it's, it is the wave of the future. It's got to be. We can't continue doing what we're doing. I mean, you gave us some statistics a while ago that just knocked my socks off. Would you say that literally 26% cost, employee cost, yeah. in the last 10 years has gone up? Yeah, and it, it, you're, you're right. It's not a, a knock against any particular physician group, hospital group. There, are, There's plenty of blame to go around as to why costs have gotten out of control in our healthcare system. Uh, it's obviously not a knock against the, 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 the value or how care is administered, uh, but there are just better ways to do it. Uh, there are better ways out there, um, and we just need to educate people on how you how you can do that and what those ways are. Well, that's you've done a great job of explaining this to us. It's a complicated subject, and if you'd like to talk to Shannon, his telephone number is 901-757-5757. That's Shannon Dyson, Vice President of Shoemaker Insurance Solutions. It's a subject that you must think about, how to respond to the rising cost. We're going to talk about rising interest costs. We're going to talk about that with Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan. But what Shannon's saying is taking control of your company's health care expense. That's such a critical thing. So thanks, Shannon. Appreciate you very much, man. We'll have you back again. I want to talk some more about this subject. It's a great subject. But let me turn the page. I do have these two guys here that are wanting to talk, just itching to talk, about the response to rising interest rates. So, Scott, I'm going to lean into you and just kind of ask you, first and foremost, I know I said earlier that it's the overnight lending rate that affects, you know, that's set by the Federal Reserve. It's government debt. That's a 10-year treasury. And it's longer-term mortgage rates. Tell me, what do you think? What is What are we talking about when we say how to respond to rising interest rates? Well, I think, you know, Jim, I, first of all, this is part of an economy. You know, when you're investing for the long term, you always are going to have different different scenarios that come your way. And we are seeing rates increase pretty rapidly uh, today to try to fight the inflation that's out there. You know, the, one of the Fed's biggest tools is raising that short term or that overnight lending rate, trying to get that federal funds rate. The anticipation is they, they call the neutral rate two and a half. They're going to try to get to that relatively quickly. <clears throat> We're sitting at, you know, between 25 basis points and a half a percent right now. So they've got a ways to go to get us back to what they consider that neutral rate. And there's even been talk that they may go above that neutral rate and get up to about 3%. So those short-term interest rates affect everything across the board, uh, where if you're borrowing money, whether it's, um, you know, investing for short-term or borrowing to, to things like to buy a house or to buy a car, that's going to affect the interest rates you pay because those short-term rates affect all the rates across the board eventually. Well, I'm excited about what you guys are going to talk to us in the second half of the program, how to respond to rising interest rates. Now, you know, it, it sounds like something we should be able to do. But, Drew, weigh in quickly. What are your thoughts? I mean, you know, you've got to tell me in less than 30 seconds. Well, knowledge is power, so you have to know exactly what you're talking about with these different interest rates, how they, how the different maturities of these rates affect the different parts of the economy, how they affect you as a consumer, as an investor. And only if you know that with confidence can you then make plans that will help you to alleviate some of the pressure that comes from those rising borrowing costs. I always like to hear Drew talk because when he said knowledge, 
knowledge is power. It's got a got a got a capital K when it comes from <laughs> Drew. I can't wait to dive into this, guys. It's how do you respond to rising interest rates? Great subject. Just want to remind you, you can find our show Apple on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Talk Money. It's with Jim Shoemaker. Subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Guys, this is all about sharing what we feel is important to help you know more about your financial life and how we can guide you through the maze of all the things financial. So stay with us. You don't want to miss the second half of the program because these guys are going to help you understand when it comes to knowledge is power. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Helping you make the most of your money. You're listening to Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker on News Talk 98.9. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Neither asset allocation nor diversification guarantee against loss. They are methods used to manage risk. You're listening to Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker on News Talk 98.9. Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money, and we thank you so much for joining us. And I also remind you that you can find us, the show, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just simply search for Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. We would appreciate it. My guest, Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan. Scott Jordan? Scott Jordan. <laughs> hey, what can I say? You know, it's Saturday morning, guys. Scott Jordan. Scott Jordan is here. We're talking about how to respond to rising interest rates. Now, we've defined it. Overnight lending rate, that's set by the Federal Reserve. The government debt, such as the 10-year Treasury note. Long-term, longer-term mortgage rates. So that's kind of the mindset. So, uh, Drew, I'm going to lead you into it. Let's talk with this one first. The overnight rate, what's that about? All right, the overnight rate. I mean, that, that all sounds really abstract. It so does. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring it down to earth. Um, you know, most developed countries, French, all developed countries, have what's called a central bank. Ours is called the Federal Reserve. And what it is tasked with doing, first and foremost, it's called the dual mandate, is maintaining stable prices and maximal employment. That's the dual mandate. It's carrying out something that the Constitution actually says is ultimately Congress's responsibility, maintaining the stable money supply, and that's delegated to the Federal Reserve. Well, why, why is that important? Why would stable prices, why would that be important? Well, if you think about it from like the, in terms of the average consumer, if you think something is going to be cheaper tomorrow than it's going to be today, you're going to wait till tomorrow to buy it. And if you get into that pattern, if society gets into that pattern where they're delaying spending because they're expecting prices to fall – that can lead it to a situation where a lot of people lose their jobs because they're not selling anything. Uh, likewise, if you think something is going to be more expensive tomorrow than it is today, you're going to want to buy it today, and then you get rush buying, and then you run, you get shortages, you run out of things, and, and, and that causes its, its own set of problems in an economy. That's basically what the Depression was, was a series of, of price 
prices falling and then mass unemployment following. So that's why it's important to maintain a stable money supply, and that's what the Federal Reserve does. It does this by uh, controlling the supply of money that's actually floating around in the economy, what a lot of economists will call M2. Uh, it can control this supply uh, one of two different main ways. One way is they can control how much reserves banks are allowed to have on their books or are required to have on their books. What, the more reserves they're required to have, the less they can lend. Uh, the other way that it controls this is by the overnight lending rate that we just talked about, which is basically what banks can charge each other to borrow from one another. If you've ever done a wire transfer at your bank, that's what that is. Uh, that interest rate, that fee that you pay for that, that's, that is based on that overnight lending rate. That's what that is. Um, so why would the Fed want to do this? Well, if the Fed is raising the overnight interest rate, usually the cause of that is that prices are rising a little more rapidly than what the Fed would like. Uh, when prices rise, that means the dollar is losing its purchasing power. You don't want that to happen over a long term. That can be very bad for trade. It can be bad for a lot of things. And so the Fed will raise that overnight rate to try and slow down the upward movement uh, of prices. Now, the problem with that is that controlling inflation has a certain cost to it. Uh, for one thing, you are contracting the money supply. You are reducing the amount of actual dollars that are floating around in the economy that people can actually spend. Um, and but when you do that, you are putting some downward pressure on future employment. But now, aren't we today thinking, I mean, when you say future employment, I mean, right now that we're at full, report, full employment. I mean, you know, we're just as low as we've been pre-pandemic. So how are you saying then, when you think about it, goes back to the idea, if we're at full employment, it's almost like we're, we're pushing one thing when we really don't need to. The economy seems to be, but I understand that we have to because inflation's out of control. Right. And, and part of the issue there is that the, the labor force is a smaller percentage of the population now than what it was three years ago. A, and lot, a lot of people don't understand that. Right. A lot of people just said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and retire early. I'm out. And so the unemployment rate doesn't count those people. And so as, as the economy continues to go full steam ahead, some of those people may rethink that decision and they may decide they want to come back into the, the labor force and then that they become part of that employment figure. Uh, but the issue is that if you, are, if, if you are reducing the amount of funds that can be loaned, that includes funds that would be loaned to start a new business, for example. And so funds that are contracted today that you, you could have borrowed yesterday, but you can't borrow today, that's going to impact what businesses are going to come into existence tomorrow that could employ people in the future. And so that, that's what I mean when I say it, it has a, a certain uh, downward effect on employment. No question it does. So now when you talk about inflation, it comes with a cost. And I guess it's important. We had the great resignation, which is what you were talking about, the, right. this idea of everybody leaving the employment status. All right. When you talk about the, there's a certain cost when you're trying to control inflation, I want everybody to understand that. So walk me through specifically when you say the cost of controlling inflation. 
Well, the other the, the other part of the cost, like well, I mean, I, I talked about it from the bank's standpoint, right. but but you t- think about it from from the consumer standpoint. When you've got interest rates going up, suddenly that makes it more attractive to save than to spend. If I can get more money at the bank than what I've been able to in in the past because rates are going up, I'm inclined to put a little bit more aside and take advantage of that than to than to spend money. And if you see that happening on a on a wide scale where people are spending less than what they were, then that also has an effect on what's actually being sold in stores or what's being purchased online. And that you go on down the line, that has an impact on employment as well. So there is a definite cost in terms of employment to interest rates going up. You know, I think, Drew, you've done a great job of laying that out. And, Scott, that does affect the consumer. I mean, the reality is the consumer can get so far caught up in this. I can remember when we had double-digit inflation during the Reagan years, and I wanted to buy a pool table, okay? It was going to go in the game room. I was, ah, yes, got to have it. Well, you know, I mean, I went out and I priced it, and I said, ooh, that's expensive. But then I thought, but if I wait... Right. <laughs> it's going to be even more It's going to be twice that. And it, I have to have it. I got to have it. <laughs> so that was, I was actually helping the economy. But how many other people would have said, ooh, because, you know, whether you like it or not, we're seeing prices go up now. And that's an impact to the consumer. Yeah, and I think the the, the kind of the amazing thing is is to date it hasn't slowed the consumer down that much. Now there is a point where it will do exactly what you said. Somebody will pause and go, "Wait a minute, here, I'm not paying that much for that." I mean, we've seen car prices skyrocket. There's a lot of pent up demand out in the economy right now, especially for services like travel and things of that nature. So the demand has kind of stayed up, and that's that's what's putting further pricing pressure on that. But there is a point where, and you know as well as I do, the consumer drives so much of the American economy. It's two-thirds of GDP. So consumer sentiment and consumers' ability or propensity to spend really has a large effect on companies, and that affects everything down the road. You know, back to what Drew was talking about, employment. If if that demand cools off too much, then companies have to start cutting back on production, and, you know, that's less people they can hire, less people they can employ and things like that. So it does have a, a downward pressure on the economy. So now point. let me ask both of you, you know, I'll go to you first, Drew. Does that signal, I mean, I know you've said the market behavior that we've been seeing in the last couple of months has been kind of normal with what's going on. But what Scott just said, are we really talking about the beginning of a recession? Are we, are we, would you say we're allowed six months to a recession, six weeks to a, six hours to, when is, are we going into a recession? Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's premature to say that. Typically you get signals that that will tell you that you'll start seeing the unemployment rate move higher, especially over a one-year, over a two-year look-back period, that hasn't happened. You typically see short-term interest rates go above longer-term interest rates, uh, which is telling you that there's more demand for longer-term debt than short-term debt. That hasn't happened either. Will that happen a year from now, two years from now? Possibly. I don't know who's uh, who's to say. But those those signals are not out there at this point. And so uh, the, the, the danger the danger is not so much that the Fed can accidentally overshoot what they're trying to do. The danger is that they get the short-term rates where they want, and then long-term rates through market forces end up falling below that point. That could be a recessionary signal, but again, that hasn't happened. Well, that's a great, great subject. Now, you're talking about overnight rates, the Federal Reserve moving the numbers, and that's responsible, you said, for stable prices and maximizing employment. That's their mandate from Congress. 
That's critical that we know from the Constitution. That's critical that we know. All right. Talk about government bond yields. What are you seeing there? Because that's the other side of this three-legged stool that you've introduced to us. Right. I mean, and that's government bond yields. That's a different animal entirely because the Fed can decide what it wants to do with short-term rates basically by fiat, by, by willing it to be so. It, 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 it becomes what it is. With government bond yields, that's all supply and demand. Those are all assets that are traded in the secondary market like stocks and like real estate. And that's all based on supply and demand. Uh, so the, overall, you, the, you go through periods where there's greater and lesser demand for government debt, and that means that the income that's being paid out by those bonds uh, is a greater or lesser percentage of the price, which means, so that means the yields go up and down there. Uh, normally, you see longer-term bond yields go up as an economy is expanding, not contracting, to go back to your recession uh, question a minute ago. And at, even as we've seen the Fed raise rates slowly and, and, we, and we've anticipated the Fed raising rates this year, we've also seen the 10-year Treasury jump dramatically just in the first uh, four months of this year so far. So the longer-term yields are, are moving on up along with the shorter-term yields. That's actually a very good sign. Uh, um, it's good. That's uh, good. The, Go ahead. But the issue, though, is that as, as interest rates move up, though, uh, the price of existing bonds fall. Yields and prices move in the opposite direction. And so even though it's been a good sign for the economy that longer-term yields have gone up, it's, that's been a bad thing for actual investors in those bonds because they've seen their prices fall. That's a good, great point. So let me ask you this, Scott. When, you, when he says that, that kind of, you know, it's kind of like I said, all right, I get it. This economic class, and you know, Scott, <laughs> you know, you and I have to just, yeah. you know, you're, we have half of the investment committee on the on the program today, and Drew does a phenomenal job of helping us get the big picture. But when it comes to the consumer, Scott, I want to kind of lean in. There's three ways. There's some problems with the consumer when he's what he's dealing with. What do you see? Well, I think people get very confused at a time like this when, you know, again, stocks are volatile because of everybody's fear over the Fed uh, raising interest rates and inflation and what that's going to do to the economy. And normally in those times, you'd see people kind of move into fixed income or into the bond side of the house and see a lot of buying on that side. But with the fear of rising rates, you've seen the market on bonds really really pull back as well. So that can be confusing to an investor because that's supposed to be the safe part of the portfolio. And those are down significantly this year. Now, we talk about this with clients all the time. The bond managers do a good job of managing that over time. They'll reinvest those coupons they're getting at higher rates. They'll hold a lot of those bonds in the portfolio and get par for them when they mature. So the temporary numbers can look a lot worse than actually what happens over a full cycle. And by that, I mean about a three- to four-year cycle in the bond market. So over a full cycle, not not as concerned. But it's very concerning when you're looking at your investments and you see your bond side down, you know, almost in some cases as much as some of the equities this year, year to date. All right, guys, let me ask you this. Recently, I know you had a chance to spend some time with a bond manager. Uh, and Drew, I want you to kind of tell us, what did you hear from this guy when you guys were going through this whole process? Because, Scott, you're talking about – the reality is they they're managing through this, but they've been the returns are disappointing. I mean, you know, you're supposed to buy bonds and that's supposed to be risk off. Yeah. And reality, it hasn't been that way. We we're seeing, you know, a portfolio suffer even if it's fifty percent bond, just using that right. as a scenario, and it's down. That fifty which is not supposed to happen. 
Tell me why, Drew. Tell me why and what they should do. Why do you see that? He's kind of explained it. I wanted both of you to give me the scenario because I think it's important for the listening audience to understand this is not always the norm. No, it's it's not always the norm, but you know, I, I would stress, and I think any any bond manager, bond fund manager out there would stress this as well that what we've seen has basically what that's what's happened over the last three months. We're talking about a very very short period, and when you get bond yields rising the way they have been, there's a point when those assets become attractive again, mm. and then you start seeing uh, fund flows back into those assets because they say, well, hey. The ten-year treasury at whatever you know, at one point six—that's one thing. But if it gets to three, which it got very close to three uh, at the uh, close of the market yesterday, uh, that suddenly looks a lot more attractive, and then and then you end up getting money that flows back into it. And so with with bonds, uh, it's it's important to hold it through the whole cycle of the bond. You're not going to get the full benefit of some of the features of the bond unless you have more of a buy and hold strategy with it that's a that's a great point let me remind everybody past performance is no indication of future performance so we just want to keep that in your mind i mean this the volatility of what's going on in the market has a tendency to create that angst that fear that concern we're just kind of giving you some insight into understand that there's a lot of moving parts but it's it's a it's all organized it's all orchestrated things do get out of whack in fact let me just read you this this came from the federal reserve recently after two years of adding $120 billion a month to bond purchases, you, I'm going to ask you, now just go with this, Drew. I mean, this is important. Bond purchases, that's the quantitative easing. You know, that was what they were doing. The Fed will begin quantitative tightening. Okay, you got those two terms. And that says in May of 2022, by allowing $95 billion a month of bonds to roll off, it's eight point five trillion balance sheet i i love using the word billion and trillion that's just numbers that are unbelievable the fed will not reinvest 95 billion a month okay got it of maturing bonds back into the newly issued bonds that's 60 billion of treasuries and 30 billion of mortgage-backed securities that's that statement from the federal reserve in your opinions guys and i'll let you either want to go first and you can go first drew bottom line is what do you take with this idea between, between quantitative easing and quantitative tightening? Well, they, these are big numbers, but but these are also kind of drops in the <laughs> Just bucket. Just a little big. These are kind of drops in the <laughs> drops in the bucket compared to the overall size of the government bond market, which is close to the size of the overall economy. Uh, we're trillions of dollars that we're talking about here. Um, and so, yes, that, that will have an impact on on what banks can uh, can lend out, uh, but it's it's still a very gradual uh, a very gradual thing, though. But it is a shift. It is a shift, and that's a difference. You know, Scott, what's your thoughts on the shift? I mean, this has been something that has been part really going on for many many years, and now we're shifting. Yeah, and I think that again, going back to the bond market and the liquidity, that definitely puts more pressure on the bond movements and prices when you've got a big purchaser like the Fed not entering into the market and pushing purchasing bonds. So, you know, that that demand for those bonds is going away. So the private market has to step in and pick up that liquidity. Now, ninety five billion sounds like a lot, and their goal is to try to pull some of the money out of the economy to cool the economy down. They they were hopeful that 
you know, prior to the Russia-Ukraine war that the supply chain improvements were going to take care of a lot of the inflation. Well, that seems delayed a little more now. So they're really going to have to cool that demand side off. And that that's just taking more money. But going back to what Drew said, putting that in perspective, you know, depending on which figure you looked at, they also just got through dumping about $7 trillion into the economy through the pandemic uh, relief program. So pulling some of that out may not be such a bad thing. Well, you mentioned it earlier. The M2 number is still strong. Right. And that's that's a big number that we talk about a lot. So you've covered overnight lending, government debt, and last but not least, and it's really personal to a lot of people, mortgages. Right. And that's you know, mortgages, that's really where the rubber meets the road with the subject because when you're talking about the Fed funds rate, that's all very abstract to most people because that's really something that banks do with one another. When you're talking about government bonds, Again, it's more institutions that are the main buyers of government bonds. When you get down to mortgages, that's the point when the consumer and the investor become the same person, and that's when they really feel it. Mortgage rates tend to be tied to the 10-year treasury, which is so that's why they move together in such sync and have for, for many decades. Uh, but that's the point where, uh, where the consumer really feels the impact of those interest rates because they're seeing um, – possibly the value of their home go down if they're if they're potential buyers in the market they're seeing their their borrowing costs uh, go up and that has impacts on, uh, on on what they can outlay month by month how much discretionary spending they can have because of how much they're having to spend in order to buy this house and that has a very a very very real impact quantitative tightening with that, the signal, in, in a way, is just as significant as the reality. Hey, I wanted um, to look smart, guys. I was working, and I wanted to read it because it made me look really good, you know, talk about big <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, guys, let's put it together. Let's put the, the thought is it's a lot of subject, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things we hear about on the news. It's media. It's noise. And yet, what do we do? What can be done, Drew? you got two minutes. All right. We've talked about short-term debt, long-term debt. We haven't talked about stocks, but we've kind of talked about real estate just by mentioning mortgages. And those are your main asset classes that would make up part of a portfolio. If you're, if you are a, a typical investor, whether you realize it or not, you, you have exposure to all of those things. Um, they each come with their own sets of risks and rewards, their advantages and disadvantages, pros and cons. They don't all re respond to the same sets of interest rate moves in the same way. And so the, the most prudent thing you can do is to diversify. Uh, and that doesn't mean I'm going to own a short-term bond and a long-term bond. I mean, I own a bunch of different short-term bonds that come from a bunch of different governments, companies, a bunch of different long-term bonds, a bunch of different pieces of real estate property through you know, REITs or other other diversified you know, diver, uh, pools of investments, stocks as well um, through different pooled investments. I want to own many, many different companies and many different sectors that get their money and make their money a variety of different ways so that when interest rates move, my assets don't all move the same way with it. You know, and I think what you're saying is you've got to mind and manage this. Scott, you want to add something to that? Well, I think Drew said it well. I think just having a plan that is tethered to a goal, you know, you, you've done a plan to know what you're trying to accomplish. You, you do your proper asset allocation and diversification to develop a portfolio that gives you a high probability of hitting those goals, and you stick with that plan for the long term. We're always going to go through these short-term gyrations in the market, whether it's inflation or, you know, 9-11, all things can cause market gyrations in the short term, but it's being able to ignore those 
short-term situations and focus on those long-term goals. We talk about this a lot. That is not easy, but that is the key to being a successful long-term investor. I think that's critical. And want to remind everybody that asset allocation or diversification, either one of these are guaranteed against loss. You still can have loss. They're just simply methods that we do want you to practice to manage risk. That's important, guys. Done a great job. Great subject. I want to thank both of you, Drew Johnson and Scott Jordan and Shannon Dyson earlier. If you have questions for Drew, Shannon, or Scott, you can reach them at 901-757-5757. You can find our show, Talk Money, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Simply search for Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker and subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. These guys do a great job of guiding you through. Tell other people about the podcast. Tell other people about the show, about what you listen to on Saturday mornings and again at 12 o'clock. Daniel Irwin will be be with me next week from the Better Business Bureau. Cryptocurrencies is topic and debt scams. Rob Clement, steps to survive a financial meltdown. Shannon Dyson's coming back with us, too. We're going to talk a little bit more about the subject we talked about today. That's Saturday morning at 7 a.m. and Sunday at 12 noon. We want to thank you so much for being a part of today's program. And again, let me remind you, don't hesitate to tell people about the program. If you have questions, you can send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Again, we appreciate that. Just leave us a review at any time you go into the podcast, or if you got something you want to say to us about Talk Money, do that. Just send it to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Thanks again for listening. We're here every week helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Helping you make the most of your money. This has been Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker on News Talk 98.9. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, and Drew Johnson are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securing Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.